0: I'm Alejandro Soto.
1: And I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 29th, 2016. Coming up,
0: we speak with Amanda Hendricks, a planetary scientist and author of a new book, Beyond Earth, Our Path to a New Home in the Planets.
1: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
0: Getting ready for post-Thanksgiving exercise? Wishing for an Apple Watch or Fitbit to monitor your workouts? Something more futuristic is on the horizon. It's wearable technology that's become even more wearable. Researchers at the University of Illinois are developing a microfluidic patch that's no bigger than a small Band-Aid, but a mighty Band-Aid. The patch contains miniaturized electronics and capillary tubes, and it firmly bonds to skin without chemical or mechanical irritation. Then when you exercise, the patch analyzes your sweat, measuring details such as your chloride and hydrogen ions, along with blood sugar and lactate production. The patch sends the data to an iPhone app, which displays a color-coded report. What can you tell from the pictures? Information about whether or not you need more water, whether you're too hot or too cold. It can tell you about your electrolyte balance and kidney function. All that from a little patch. The researchers believe their device may someday also analyze sweat and blood and other body fluids. The study was reported in last week's Science and Translational Medicine.
1: Some stars have names, like Polaris and Vega. Some have designations based on their constellation. But most stars just have catalog numbers, like... H.D. 1259, or S.A.O. 192442. How do stars switch from being just another number to being a real name? Until recently, the only officially recognized names for stars were those that were given names going far back in history with mostly Arabic, Greek, or Latin origins. It's just impractical to try to name every star, since modern catalogs list billions of stars. However, people often express a desire to name at least some of the brighter unnamed stars. So back in May, the International Astronomical Union established a working group on star names, and last week they released the first set of 227 approved star names. The working group delves into worldwide astronomical history and culture to recommend and approve unique star names. These include ancient Arabic star names such as Aldebaran and Sirius. More modern offerings on the official list come from public nominations and votes, such as the star names Chalawan and Ogma. But you may ask, what about star registries where you can buy the right to name a star after yourself or a loved one? None of these registries are official. So unfortunately, the money you spend to name your star gives you only a paper certificate, The name will never be used by astronomers or in professional star catalogs. If you want to give a loved one a real astronomical gift, try a visit to your local planetarium or contact a nearby university or amateur astronomy group. These organizations often offer star-viewing nights for the public. That way, you can learn your way around the sky and perhaps ask experienced stargazers to show you officially named stars, such as Rigel or RCAB Prior or Menkib.
0: For this week's Science Calendar, tomorrow evening at Boulder Bookstore, you can hear Jeffrey Bennett talk about his new book, A Global Warming Primer. Dr. Bennett is a professional astronomer, author of many books, including the popular Max Goes to the Moon series, and he's been a guest on How on Earth. In his new book, he explains why human induced climate change is a real threat to our future. Dr. Bennett says the basic science proving this isn't difficult, and his talk, and the book in more detail, will help readers understand more about it. Jeff Bennett's talk is this Wednesday evening at 730, that's tomorrow night, at the Boulder Bookstore. Find out more at the Boulder Bookstore website. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Alejandro Soto. Many have dreamt of colonizing other planets. It's been a staple of science fiction for decades. Most often, people imagine colonizing uh, Mars, where people would live on a cold, dry planet with with a thin, unbreathable atmosphere. Today's guest proposes a new and exciting destination for human exploration and eventual colonization, Titan, the largest moon of Saturn. With this thick nitrogen atmosphere similar in thickness to Earth's and seas of natural gas for energy, our guest today says that Titan makes for a compelling destination. Her name is Dr. Amanda Hendricks. She's the co-author with Charles Wolforth of the new book, Beyond Earth, Our Path to a New Home in the Planets. Dr. Hendricks is a planetary scientist who has been a scientific investigator on the Galileo and lunar reconnaissance missions and the author of many scientific papers. Dr. Hendricks has been a as an investigator for the Cassini mission where she has focused her research on the moons of Saturn. Dr. Hendricks is here today to speak with us about her book and the prospects of human exploration at Titan and beyond. Dr. Amanda Hendricks, welcome to How on Earth.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So I myself am also a planetary scientist and I also study Titan and yet I have to admit that I had never considered this idea of human exploration of Titan. This is kind of an exciting idea, but I'm kind of curious, Sort of, how did you arrive at this, particularly when most of our community is, is really focused on uh, Mars exploration?
2: Right. So it's an interesting question. We We came up with the idea of the book of thinking of a long-term, sustainable human settlement somewhere in the solar system. And we thought about where we might want to establish such a colony or settlement. And to be honest with you, Mars doesn't really excite me in that way for a long-term sustainable uh, colony. And um, Titan might sound like a wacky idea, but really there's a lot of benefits to going to Titan. It is farther from the Earth and the Sun, so it takes longer to get there. But uh, as you mentioned, it's got this nice thick atmosphere, mostly nitrogen with some methane, and, um, and that provides shielding. Um, from the damaging radiation um, and micrometeoroids. Um, and so it it's, can be a, a much safer environment than someplace like Mars. It's also a lot more Earth-like because it's the only body in the solar system that has uh, stable liquids on the surface. So it has seas and lakes of methane and ethane and that gives it um, a very Earth-like nature to it. So in terms of safety and Earth-like qualities, we like Titan as a long-term human destination. Now, don't get me wrong, I do think it's important for humans to visit Mars and to go there as kind of a next step and to do science, but if we're considering a very long-term, sustainable settlement, then um, we like Titan as that place.
0: So you've you've mentioned some of the advantages to Titan, but I imagine there's still disadvantages. What kind of challenges would uh, astronauts, and more importantly colonists, be facing if they were looking to Titan as a place to live?
2: Probably um, it's cold. (laughs) It's about minus 291 Fahrenheit, so it is cold. However, there's ways around that. There's no oxygen in the atmosphere also. So uh, astronauts or colonists there would need to wear... If they go outside, they do not have to wear a pressure suit like you would on the moon or Mars because it, there is atmospheric pressure, so that's good. But they would have to wear a suit to keep them warm and a, a respirator so that they could breathe oxygen. Um, but there, there's such a wealth of um, energy and resources on the surface there and in the atmosphere and in the lakes and seas that we imagine that a lot of uh, buildings could be built there. Uh, out of plastics, because of the um, resources there from hydrocarbons, and and plenty of um, energy resources. So you could build warm buildings out of plastic, and and people would be perfectly fine.
0: So, but one of the interesting things about building there, it leads to one of the ways that I think people need to th- think differently about Titan. Like you said, it's extremely cold. So the the surface of Titan. Uh, it's probably some uh, solid hydrogen carbons. Um, uh, also, we have the liquid uh, seas that are made of methane and ethane. But we believe that the bulk of the surface is made up of uh, water ice that is as strong as rock at that point. But if you start putting down um, buildings on the surface, aren't you going to have problems? Like you, sp- the heat from the buildings and start melting the land you're on. You might start sinking in, like, like buildings out in the Salton Sea in Southern California.
2: That's a good point. We we talked about that in Beyond Earth, how there could be, uh, you'd need to bolt down your buildings or your structures um, well enough. And there could even be problems with buoyancy. Um, as you know, you might melt the surface a little bit, your buildings might become a little bit buoyant. So you'd need to just structurally account for those. Um, th- there's ways around those types of issues, but that's a good point.
0: <laughs> and I think the other one that um, some of our listeners might be thinking, if these seas are made of methane and ethane. Well, what we're really talking about there is uh, natural gas. So I I know when I talk about Titan, people often immediately like, well, wait a minute, how does natural gas, that's explosive, what's gonna happen? So is that a concern? I mean, your atmosphere is gonna light
2: up on you? It's only a minor concern because there's no oxygen in the atmosphere, as I mentioned. So uh, in, in order to actually utilize the natural gas, the hydrocarbons there, you'd have to harvest at least some of the water, ice that's there, and uh, do electrolysis on it to then derive oxygen for breathing and then for doing the combustion of the hydrocarbons. Mm -hmm. Um, You you probably only need to do that um, to a certain extent because then you'd have water as a byproduct of the chemistry. But um, you you wouldn't have to worry about combustion You know, in terms of accidents, except uh, when you're actually doing the combustion uh, experiments. And then you just have to take care just like you do here on Earth.
0: So when you guys were thinking this through, did you sort of walk through a a day in life for a a Titan colonist? And and what would that be like?
2: Well, we thought about that, that you might have. um, Well, first of all, we thought about um, a whole scenario for exploration where first you might want to send robotic um, explorers to set up the actual um, habitat, an initial habitat, maybe set up an initial power plant um, where you could harvest methane and water ice, maybe build some sort of power plant where the output is breathable oxygen and um, energy. And then you might have some initial astronauts go to set up the colony and maybe build some more buildings, set up some um, plants. Um, for for growing, um, and then you might have more and more settlers or colonists arrive. You can imagine that generation after generation there, th- you might uh, have a whole new culture set up, a whole new population of people that are Titanians and, and not Earthlings anymore, and it might be very different than here on Earth.
0: Wow. S- <laughs> sounds exciting. But one thing you mentioned there that I, I want to sort of, go back to, though, is um, you talked about early robotic exploration. And what's cool about that is that's not too far away from what we do now. We have... uh, We've been flying by uh, Titan with the Cassini spacecraft for over 10 years. We've put robotic explorers on Mars, so the idea of putting them on Titan is not um, not what you would call crazy. But you do bring up an interesting possible robot that I thought was kind of fun because it was inspired by a toy. So, uh, could you explain... Uh, what that is?
2: Right. So this is called a tensegrity robot where it is inspired by a baby toy where you can th- it's a, kind of a, like a cage and you can throw it and it doesn't uh, break and it rolls around and and uh, there's some researchers at NASA Ames who have used this in tests uh, where you can have um, and it could be maybe as big as a person say about as tall as a person and It could have different scientific instruments on there at different uh, corners of the whole tensegrity unit. And it can roll along the surface. It can stop. It can make measurements. um, And there's just a a wealth of possibilities there. But you're right that we are not that far off from doing uh, further robotic exploration of Titan. As you know, there's plenty of um, NASA and other space agency scientists who have studied the idea of uh, boats and submarines uh, doing scientific exploration at Titan and even airplanes. Um, And so those are all possibilities. And even if you had humans there, you could do things like boating activities, flying. You wouldn't even need an airplane to go flying.
0: (laughs) You mean a human being could just put on like wings and fly off in the titan atmosphere
2: yes you could because the atmosphere is thick enough so you have some material to flap against and there's low gravity it's a little bit lower gravity than on our own moon and um so it would be easy to fly wow maybe if you were feeling a little bit lazy you could strap on a little booster on your back and get a push
0: (laughs) (laughs) sounds exciting You're tuned to KGNU Science Show, How on Earth. I'm Alejandro Soto, and my guest is Dr. Amanda Hendricks, author of Beyond Earth, Our Path to a New Home in the Planets. So it sounds like there are a lot of exciting things to be done there with both humans and robots, but I imagine that one of the big challenges that would be true whether we go to Mars or Titan or elsewhere is just getting there. Um, In particular, there are a number of challenges for human beings traveling through space bone loss, muscle loss, radiation, and just the psychology of long-duration trips, and also autonomous medical care. Are we actually doing any type of research and work now that would get us to the place where we could solve these problems?
2: That's a really, really good and important question. Uh, And all the issues that you brought up are very real and are being addressed, Um, especially, I would say, problems related to microgravity and bone loss and... Um, vision problems that come with microgravity. um, Those are all issues um, and can be resolved to a certain extent by doing, say, exercise um, as astronauts do right now on International Space Station. Um, The more critical problem that we came across in doing research for the book is the radiation problem. And in particular, I mean... Uh, Galactic Cosmic Ray, or GCRs. Uh, These are very energetic particles that come into our solar system from exploding stars and are very powerful. So there's also the radiation that comes from our own sun and solar storms, and that is still a problem, but is more predictable. Um, And so it's the GCRs that really uh, form a problem for astronauts, or humans anywhere in space, so, so especially beyond uh, low Earth orbit. So transport to Mars or to Titan, um, radiation from GCRs is a problem. And then when you're at your destination, it's a problem. And the real problem, as we know, is um, that these particles can cause cancer. And more recent research has shown that they can cause brain damage. And so that presents a real operational risk also for a mission. So uh, what that tells us is that our, for a long-term human destination, we need to go someplace that's safe. And we like Titan as that option. Um, you could go to Mars and live there for a long time, but you'd have to live there underground. No, so that doesn't sound that fun. Um, but also, the, the journey time needs to be shorter. So getting to Titan right now takes about seven years, like it took the Cassini mission. So that's too long. So we do need we do need a transportation solution, and we talk about a couple of options in the book.
0: But are those transportation solutions you think near term, or is that where we're getting into? We need more decades more of research. We
2: need decades more research, and we hope that because of the radiation problem, that um, resources can be dedicated to addressing uh, those transportation um, challenges
0: interesting um so um well why don't you tell us about one of those uh potential um new propulsion ideas
2: right so it's it's a wacky idea (laughs) and it's being um it's being worked on by a person that we profiled in the book named dr sunny white who's at johnson space center and he's working on this concept called a quantum thruster and it actually, um, it's, it's something similar to what the, um, the Dawn spacecraft uses, ion propulsion. Dawn is in orbit at uh, the asteroid Ceres now, and it uses ion propulsion. And the quantum thruster is similar to that, except that instead of ions, where you have to take um, your fuel with you, in this case, it would be xenon atoms, uh, you don't have to take your xenon atoms with you. You, ha- you just harvest, uh, quantum virtual particles on your way out to Mars or Titan or wherever you're going. So these are particles that are virtual and they pop up and it's no joke, it actually works evidently. It sounds bizarre, but it can work although more more study is needed. Um, and so this is something that can provide uh, what's called continuous acceleration. And so you keep just going faster and faster and faster and faster. And then probably at your halfway point, you're going to have to turn around and start decelerating continuously so that you arrive at your destination and don't pass it up. (laughs) But something like that can get you there fast enough and can get you to Saturn in probably something like a year.
0: That's an exciting idea because I know that these quantum virtual particles have been been measured. They're out there. Mm. And also this kind of solution would solve the perennial problem that carrying your fuel with you puts more demand. This is the, 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 the classic rocket problem. Like if you didn't have to carry your fuel with you, it, it would be easy. Uh, and so, hey, that'd be exciting if we get rid of that problem. Exactly. So there's lots of cool and interesting uh, potential here and a lot of fun research to be done and, and things to get excited about. But I want to spend the last few minutes we have talking about uh, a mission that I would argue has provided us the information to make Titan an exciting place to go, which is the Cassini mission. Uh, so I know you've been working on the Cassini mission for a number of years. Uh, Cassini was launched in the in the late 90s, and it's probably our last giant flagship mission. It's larger than a bus, crammed full of um, amazing instruments, cameras, spectrometers, particle uh, instruments designed to uh, measure particles in the uh, orbit around Cassini. Um, uh, what I'm interested in talking about real quick is what did we know about Titan before Cassini arrived? And what do we know now? And how has that driven both the research and also these ideas?
2: Right. Our information and our knowledge about Titan has absolutely exploded since Cassini has arrived at Saturn. And so it's, it's such an awesome mission. As you mentioned, it was launched in 1997 and it arrived at Saturn in 2004. It's done mo- It orbits Saturn, but then it will do flybys of Titan to do science, and also to help gain some energy in its orbit. And it's done more than 120 flybys of of Titan in the last 13 or so years. And there's 12 instruments on the spacecraft, on the orbiter. And there's a couple key ones that are really important for um, Titan. Because what we knew about Titan before is that it had a thick nitrogen atmosphere. And we know that from Earth-based measurements and from the Voyager spacecraft. Um, But
0: for Voyager, we couldn't actually see the surface, right? We couldn't see the
2: surface. All we could see is this giant orange ball. (laughs) And so Cassini carries an infrared instrument and uh, instruments and a radar. And these wavelengths are long enough that they can penetrate through that thick atmosphere and see the surface like our eyes can't. And that reveals to us the lakes and seas on the surface, the hydrocarbon dunes on the surface. Um, We know that there's clouds and weather and seasonal variations. Um, It's just we know so much more about Titan now. I also want to mention that um, the Cassini mission included the Huygens probe that was uh, released from the spacecraft and traveled through the atmosphere making measurements as it of the atmosphere as it traveled through the atmosphere and then uh, landed on the surface and made measurements of the surface and the environment and took pictures it just landed it didn't rove around but it, it survived for some um, number of tens of minutes uh, on the surface and without that we wouldn't know uh, nearly all that we know about Titan's um, surface and environment now. So it's just been irreplaceable. Uh, Still more to do, of course, but Cassini is, is, like I said, a totally awesome mission.
0: Now, unfortunately, we're in the last year of Cassini's mission. what does that last year look like? How, what is this swan song going to be?
2: Oh, it's really great. And it's just beginning now. We're calling it the grand finale. And um, the inclination of the orbit is increasing so that it's uh, well above the plane of the rings of Saturn and the moons of Saturn. And so we're getting, um, we will be getting very good looks at the polar regions. And what will happen is we're getting closer in. So the closest point, um, it's called periaps. The closest point of Cassini's orbit to Saturn will, uh, at some point soon, be actually inside the rings. So between the innermost ring, which is the D ring, and the top of Cassini's atmosphere is where Cassini is going to fly for several orbits. Closest we've ever gotten to the planet, closest we've ever gotten to the rings, and it's just going to provide spectacular views of the polar region of uh, the planet, the aurora and the rings, and it's going to tell us about the mass of the rings, how old they are, uh, what the interior of the planet is like, and so much more. It's, it's super exciting. So
0: if I was, a, say I was an astronaut riding along with Cassini, what you're saying is, I, at that periaps point, I'd be able to look to one side and see the rings, and to the other side, see a planet.
2: Yes. <laughs>
0: and that's kind of cool, because we've never done that with any mission.
2: Right. It's, it's, it's a little bit similar to Juno. It's got a Juno-like orbit, but, of course, the uh, rings of Jupiter are not nearly nearly as awesome as Saturn. Because Juno
0: is in a polar orbit around Jupiter right Right. now. Right. Well, that is really cool. Um, It's unfortunate that the mission's ending, but at least it sounds like you guys are ending in a very exciting fashion. Yes. Uh, And it's great to see. Do you have some hopes for future missions to either Titan or Saturn?
2: Well, uh, there are some concepts in the works for Uh, Titan, future Titan missions. Um, Also we haven't talked about Enceladus which is the tiny moon of Saturn that has this active plume at its south pole and it's sourced by a subsurface ocean which could harbor life. And so concepts are in the work for uh, perhaps future missions to Enceladus to try to sample that plume and see uh, if there could be life in that subsurface ocean.
0: Well this is all very exciting and I I definitely look forward to seeing what happens in the near future and what kind of ideas you inspire with this new book of yours. So uh, I encourage anybody who's interested in reading more about this to go out and get it. Um, I'm Alejandro Soto. I've been speaking with Amanda Hendricks, a planetary scientist and co-author of a new book, Beyond Earth, Our Path to a New Home in the Planets. She'll be discussing her new book in person at the Bookshop of Fort Collins in Fort Collins tonight at 7 p.m. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by me, Alejandro Soto, and was engineered by Shelley Schlender. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Joel Parker.
1: Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Ivy.
0: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
1: Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line, 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelly Schlender.
0: And I'm Alejandro Soto.